If you would like more information about Jubilee Church, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up in the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man bought a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Al-Kadamah, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward to Joseph called Barsabas, who was also called Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go his own, to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. I want to welcome you to Jubilee Church. Uh, if you've not met me, my name is Brian Mowry, lead pastor of Jubilee Church. And we are one church uh, with four locations here in the city. We have one in Kirkwood, uh, Lake of the Ozarks, and Washington. Uh, and we are all going through a series in the book of Acts. We started last week. This is week two. And we came across uh, a pretty uh, interesting section this week. Uh, I remember when I first read this section that was read just a minute ago, um, like, why in the world is this passage here? I mean, this seems just really odd. What is this supposed to teach us? Like, you know, um, is this how we choose elders? You know, we roll the dice or, you know, if you need a new girlfriend, you know, you roll, you know, roll some dice or, you know, what job do you take? Roll it. None of the record. Um, I would not suggest that. All right. Um, uh, I would not suggest rolling the dice to make decisions. That's not what the Bible is trying to tell us. And in fact, it's helpful to understand that uh, in the in the scriptures, in particular Acts, this is an important thing for studying the book of Acts, uh, there are verses that are prescriptive, uh, that is, they prescribe what we do. Uh, and then there are words that are descriptive, that describe what happened, not necessarily prescribing what we should do. And this is a descriptive verse on what happened. Uh, but, but even that, it's just one of those passages that you just kind of skip over, you know, in the Bible reading plan. You just don't really make much sense of it. Um, and to be honest with you, I, we kind of planned that, you know, the, the team that puts these messages together, we kind of planned just to skip over it as well, but that bothered us. Uh, but here, here's why I think it's there. I, I think it's there uh, to help you and I uh, tell us uh, why the Bible became the authoritative guide for Christians. Uh, we're we're going to read about just an explosive multiplying movement in the early church. Uh, and this, this, 
Bible, this, the Old Testament scriptures, and they would soon write the New Testament scriptures. This became their divine guide for how they, in the foundation for the multiply movement. In fact, in, in chapter two, we're going to read about how they were devoted to it. All right. It says that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching was the New Testament. And I think we need to hear this about, okay, how did this become this authoritative divine word of God? Uh, because there's a lot of skepticism around the Bible. Many, many people would see the Bible as being dull, uh, this kind of outdated rule book, uh, maybe full of contradictions, irrelevant to 21st century people. And yet, and yet, it's uniquely popular. Uh, it's the most. Uh, successful literary creation ever, by, by a long shot, more influential than Shakespeare or any other great text, uh, is completely global. Uh, Homer is uh, translated into more than 40 language. Shakespeare is translated into more than 60 language. But the Bible is translated well over 2,000 languages. And it is, it is every publisher's dream. I mean, every year is a bestseller. More than 40 million copies every year. So it is wildly popular still, but is that all it is to us? You know, the average American household has 6.8 Bibles. But is it just something that sits on the shelf? The early disciples saw the scriptures as an authority and the foundation for their multiplying movement. And that's why this is such an important verse. I'm glad we're not skipping over it because we're going to talk about a lot of stuff. It's like, how does the Jubilee make decisions and how do we get led as a group, as a church? It's like, man, the Bible's it. But I want to put before you, how do you make decisions? How do you, uh, uh, what's the foundation of, of your life? And um, so let's take a look at why um, these early disciples, why they saw um, the scriptures as being uh, their authoritative, foundational, divine guide. And there's a few things that we'll see this passage shows us. Number one, how the apostles saw the Old Testament scriptures, which is important, and the authority of the apostles. Secondly, the authority of the apostles assumed in writing the new scripture, which is important, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And a reason, if you're skeptical, I'm glad you're here, uh, a reason for skeptics to consider the apostles' bold claims to this authority. Okay, so let's talk about how they saw the Old Testament uh, scriptures. There's two ways. The first way that they saw it, they saw it as authenticated prophecies about Jesus. Peter quotes Psalm in this passage right here, Acts 1. Um, so he says, brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which, is, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. They saw the Old Testament in part as prophecies given by the Holy Spirit predicting the coming of Jesus. Bible scholars will tell you um, that there are 322 direct prophecies that describe for us the character and nature of the coming Messiah, that is Jesus, uh, as well as, spe- I mean, specific details about his birth, uh, his life, and his death. Um, the, the fulfillment of these prophecies proved to these, so this is why this is important, because these prophecies proved to them that Jesus was exactly who he says he was. It's like a divine signature that cannot be forged. I recently came across a CIA report describing how they authenticate a double agent that I found absolutely fascinating. Um, uh, And this is a real story. Whenever a double agent wants to reveal information to the CIA, the CIA typically gives them several several layers um, by which to identify themselves so that there's no chance that it's going to get messed up. Because if you mess up the identity of a double agent, uh, you're in big trouble. So this is an actual example. One particular Soviet double agent was given six prearranged signs to accomplish. Number one, he was to go to Mexico City. Number two, contact a certain guy in that city and let him know he was there and identify himself by the name of I. Jackson. Number three, after three days, he was to go to a specific place in that city. Number four, he was to stand in front of a statue of Columbus. Number five, with his middle finger placed in a guidebook, Uh, When approached by someone um, asking for directions, uh, number six, he was to state that the statue of Columbus was a magnificent statue and that he was from Oklahoma. How do I know this? Because I am that double agent. No. Uh, 
It sounds like you know the kind of authentication you need for your Gmail account. But here, here's the point. At this point, they knew that they would have had their guy. So the CIA goes through all this, these six tests. To, to, so they, then they know that they know that they have their guy, and there's a lot at risk if they don't have that guy. So this is what they go through, six te- techs, tests. Excuse me. Now check this out. Jesus did not have six layers of identification, but 322. This is absolutely phenomenal. I mean, if you don't really like pay attention to like what the Bible says and how do we know it's true, this is absolutely phenomenal. Um, because, and this is, especially for those who, uh, who are Christian, because um, you get a lot of flack for, uh, for believing the Bible. Uh, there are a lot of people out there that say that you're basically an unsophisticated moron for believing in fairy tales because of his teachings and miracles. People want to put Jesus in the self-help or Disney section. But show me the man or woman who could fulfill, I mean, a dozen signs, must, much less 322 signs, many of which, this is important, many of which were totally out of his control. Like for example, like he would be, that he would be from the line of David. You can't predict who you're going to be, you know, you, don't, you can't choose your parents, right? You can choose some other things, but you can't choose your parents. Jeremiah 23, 5, it says that he would be born from the line of David. He was born from the line of David. In Zechariah eleven thirteen, it says that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. That's a lot of detail. That he would be betrayed and that it would be for 30 pieces of silver. Uh, in Psalm twenty-two sixteen, it says that his hands and feet would be pierced. In Psalm twenty-two eighteen, it says that people would cast lots for his clothing, and they did. The mathematical, and there, again, there's 322 of these. The mathematical odds are absolutely astronomical. Uh, I'll put it to you this way. Imagine filling the entire landmass of the world uh, with silver dollars, a hundred and 20 feet deep. Now, take one of those coins and uh, you know, mark it with you know, red marker and randomly put it, bury it somewhere in the midst of all of those coins all over the world, 120 feet deep. Now, finally, uh, find a volunteer, blindfold them, and say, go find that coin. That man or woman has slightly better odds than the prophecies of Jesus being randomly true. It is astronomically, it is an unbelievable stat that all of these prophecies about Jesus were true. So one, they saw it as, they saw the Old Testament as a fulfillment and that gave them faith in the scriptures. The second thing that they saw here is that they were both words of man, but, all, but more importantly, they were the words of the Holy Spirit. They're words of God. Check out, again, let's look at Acts one sixteen. It says, Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke. So the Holy Spirit spoke, but then it says beforehand, by the mouth of David. Uh, so which is it? You know, is it, is it David or is it the Holy Spirit? And the answer, of course, is yes. It's both. It's, um, well, how can it be both? Well, it's kind of like walking a toddler, right? So like if you get a toddler... And, you know, you, you know, they can't really walk. You kind of like take their two hands and you kind of walk with them. Is it the toddler walking or are you the one walking them? Well, they're walking, but you're guaranteeing that they make it. And that's what the Holy Spirit's in. The Holy Spirit is guaranteeing that um, it's, it's accurate, that they're getting it right. Second Peter says it this in his second letter. Um, he says, the prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, Okay, so it's not, a lot of people just think, and man, just a bunch of men wrote this book, but this is what they believed. They believed that prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke uh, from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That, that phrase, carried along, is the Greek word phero, uh, and it's a word to describe how a ship sails. The wind would be, would be the pharaoh of the ship, that, that Greek word, carried along by the ship. So as men wrote as the ship went, it's, you know, uh, God's wind was carrying their words to the exact destination of their choosing. So the holy, men wrote it, but, but the Holy Spirit's carrying it along. Just as the wind carries a ship, so does God, uh, uh, 
carry along the words that are in the scriptures. So yes, there are human conventions of speech. I mean, there's estimations, not exact numbers. There's metaphors, there's poetry, there's figures of speech, but it's divinely carried along. It's divinely carried along. I'll, I'll use this analogy. This may help. Uh, Aero Saarinen was one of the greatest architects uh, in the mid-century, uh, in our last century, um, in the U.S., uh, and he was the one who, who built the Gateway Arch. It was, he designed it in 1947 and constructed it um, over the two-and-a-half-year two period uh, from February 1963 to October 1965, and it was a magnificent creation. It is a magnificent creation uh, made up of 142 12-foot steel sections that make the arch 630 feet high. It is considered a masterpiece of Aero Saarinen, that is still the tallest monument in the world. And yet, he didn't make any of it steel. He, he didn't put one section on top of the other. He did none of the building of the arch, the actual building of the arch. Other people did that. But there was one mind. There was one architect. There was one inspiration behind it. So it is with the Bible. There are many writers who put the bricks together, who put the words together, but there's one architect. There's one inspiration behind it all, and it was God himself. The early church saw the Bible as words from God, and like I said earlier, we'll, we'll read this when we get to chapter two. They devoted themselves to it. They devoted themselves to it. Do you see the Bible that way? Does it have a place of authority in your life? Do you see it as a place... Um, that, that's, that's driving your direction? Or is that you? Are you the authority? Who's the authority? Is the Bible the authority? I mean, I just want to encourage you um, uh, to get into God's word. Um, you know, we, we do, we're getting ready to finish the Bible reading plan, but we're going to start another one on January 21st. Uh, get that Bible reading plan, go through. Um, I think we're going to just go through the New Testament this year. Get in community groups where we discuss God's word. Uh, Make it, know it, and make it a foundation to your life. So, that, so they saw it as like, you know, that the, that the Old Testament scriptures were um, the fulfillment of, of prophecies about Jesus and that they were uh, divinely inspired. And two, um, the, so moving on to the New Testament, the, the, the apostles, the, these disciples, um, they assumed the authority in writing new scripture. Um, we'll go back to Acts one twenty-two, or we'll go to Acts one twenty-two. excuse me. So one of the men who had accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must be with us as a witness to the resurrection. So what he's, they're talking about Judas, and they're saying, okay, this, so the whole chapter is replacing Judas, but in this is talking about the importance of God's word. Uh, Jesus had declared that there'd be 12 apostles uh, corresponding to the 12 tribes of Israel. And this would be these authoritative representatives. Um, and so Jesus said some things like this in John 14. He says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said. Now, this verse is for all of us. I mean, the Holy Spirit reminds us of his words, which we know are in scripture. Uh, but he was speaking this to his disciples saying, look, man, the Holy Spirit is going to bring to remembrance all that I've said to you. And, uh, and they were able to, um, that's how they're able to write the New Testament scriptures. In Matthew 16, 18, something very similar. I will give you the kings of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Um, so Peter, in this passage, you know, he felt like they, we need to replace this person uh, to step in the role of an authoritative uh, position. And then there were others. Uh, uh, Paul, uh, Peter says this about Paul in his second letter. He says, he's talking about patience, but he says, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all of his letters when he speaks uh, in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. Here's a, the thing to pay attention to, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do with the other scriptures. So they, they knew that they were writing authoritatively scripture, like what, what um, Peter's saying, what Paul's writing his scripture, because he's comparing it to other scripture. And that's important that they they saw the Old Testament as scripture, but they saw what they were writing as authoritative 
divinely inspired word of God. Now, finally, I just want to just address um, the skeptics in the room. Um, if you're one of those skeptics who say, well, I, I just don't believe the apostles claim to be speaking the word of God. You know, many people have claimed that over the years, and Muhammad, Joseph Smith, David Koresh, just to name a few. I'm not going to be believe the Bible just because it claims to be the word of God. Well, um, I, I want to show you a few things. N- number one, um, about the resurrection of Jesus. Um, that the apostles had to be re- had to be eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. If you go back to Acts one twenty one, it says here um, that these men must become must become with us as a witness to his resurrection. Luke says something very similar in his passage. He says, insomuch, so Luke is the one who wrote Acts, right? And in his first letter, Luke, uh, the Gospel of Luke, he's, he's, he starts out to his friend Theopolis, just like he did in the book of Acts. He says, insomuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time, to write to you an orderly account for you, most excellent Theopolis. See, Luke is saying, look, I'm compiling um, some eyewitness accounts. So he wrote it you know, sometime after the life of Jesus. Uh, but he's saying, look, this is all from eyewitness account. And so before you push the Bible aside, consider that Luke, and really a lot of the scripture, is a series of eyewitness accounts pointing to something miraculous has happened, namely the life and death of Jesus. And we evaluate if these eyewitnesses are reliable. So he's saying this, he's like, look, you know, I'm going to I'm going to give you an orderly account of all the eyewitnesses. But if you really want to, you can go find out for yourself. You can go ask these eyewitnesses. Now, the most popular idea against the Bible today is just a bunch of myths and silly legends. Uh, The theory goes that, you know, the first Christians believed in Jesus. He was a nice guy, kind of like this benevolent hippie. You know, he had some nice religious things to say. But over time, Christians invented stories about his power and divinity to kind of beef up their claims. And these gradually got worked out in the Gospels. And eventually, they stomped out anyone who disagreed. Let me give you just a few quick reasons why, three reasons um, why I don't think this is true. Uh, and, And I think they're pretty... Uh, compelling. Number one, the timing of the writing is too early for the Gospels to be a legend. That's important. Uh, the books of the Bible were written about 30 years after the life, uh, excuse me, yeah, after the life of Jesus. Uh, some of the main ones being written as, as early as 20 years. Uh, that's just way too early for myth and legend to spring up. For example, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, which he wrote in about 55 AD, which is not contested, all right? So when we talk about these documents, the timing of which they're written, historians who study this kind of stuff, they don't contest that kind of authenticity. Uh, he says there are f- about 500 people who are alive who just who s- were witnesses, who witnessed Jesus post-resurrection. And he names a few of them. And he goes, says, go check them out. You don't write that kind of thing um, you know, if it's not true, right? Because people can just say, liar, liar, pants on fire. I just... So, you know, I didn't. I, I don't see any of these witnesses, but because this document made it, um, the some we can we can rightly assume that it's true. Um, number two, the content is far too counterproductive to be a legend. There's just way too much stuff, uh, particularly in the Gospels, that you just would not make up if you're trying to make up. Uh, um, you know, a legend. For example, the the disciples, the one who wrote the New Testament. I mean, they were, they were a punchline on, on every single page. Um, reading their stories is like watching an episode of The Three Stooges. I mean, they're always getting it wrong. I mean, so much so that one time, I mean, Jesus had to say to one of them, get behind me, Satan. I mean, imagine that. Like, oh yeah, you should come to uh, my church. Uh, my pastor, um, you know, Jesus told my pastor that he was Satan. It's like, you wouldn't put that in there. Uh, they were arrogant. They were afraid. They were uneducated. They were mean to kids. They were not, you know, these are not things that you would put in there if you're making up a story. If you're writing a legend to get people to believe, um, you know, that you were something special, you would pad your resume. You'd put a few letters behind your name. You would make yourself better. But they, I mean, they actually come off not as the heroes of the story. 
And here's another one, and just kind of bear with me on this one. The Gospels were recorded in a place and time where the testimony of a woman in court was inadmissible. This wasn't a, a, a Bible value. This was like a this was a, a value in that time period, in that uh, early Palestine time period. And yet, the Gospels record that women were the first ones to see Jesus after the resurrection. You don't put that in there if you're making up a story, knowing that no one believes the testimony of a woman. The Gospels record that women were the first to see Jesus resurrected because that's what actually happened. Number two, the message itself, and this I think is the most compelling, just too costly to be a legend. Um, This message that Jesus was Lord and had risen from the dead didn't gain the disciples any power prestige. In fact, it had the opposite effect because it cost them their very lives. We'll learn this as we go through Acts, but uh, a lot of people lost their life preaching the gospel. They, they were a highly persecuted group. The church history tells us that the apostles all died an unnatural death. James was, was stoned. Paul was thought to be beheaded. Peter was crucified upside down. This is the same Peter who denied Jesus three times in one night. Do you think Peter would deny the living Jesus and then turn around and die for a dead one? To believe this was all made up is to believe the the apostles were sitting around one day after the um, death of Jesus and Peter jumps up, you know, like Danny in Ocean's Eleven or something like that and makes this pitch. He says, I know, I'll tell you what, let's, let's just tell everybody that Jesus resurrected, right? Let's just make everybody believe that Jesus resurrected. And here's what we'll do. We'll, we'll get to be the leaders of a new re- religion, except we will teach everyone that Jesus's kingdom is not of this world. So they won't get any benefit in this world, right? They, they won't do that. And, and we'll teach them and we'll give all of our money away. Like, we'll just give our stuff away. Uh, We won't claim any possession. And when people try to kill us and hurt us, we won't avoid it. We won't fight back. And maybe, just maybe, if we're lucky, we'll get martyred through a painful, humiliating death. That's what you have to believe if you believe they made it up. The resurrection, if the resurrection is true, then it makes perfect sense that Jesus would authorize and commission a group of men, empower them by the Spirit to record an accurate version of all that Jesus wanted us to know and do. Otherwise, it would just be a massive waste of time for Jesus to go through all that effort to die for the sins of the world, but not, not, not give an account for how that can happen. It'd just be a waste of time. It's like, you know, if I have, you know, I have friends overseas, I have friends in the UK. It's like if I, you know, spend a thousand dollars or whatever to buy them a plane ticket to come over and see me, but I never gave them the address to how to get to my house. It'd just be a waste of money and it'd be kind of a cruel joke. I believe the Bible for the reasons the first believers did. I am convinced that the testimony of the apostles is true. I believe he is, he says he is. I believe that he is the promised seed of Abraham that would crush, that did crush the head of Satan's sin and death. I believe that he was born of a virgin. I believe that he lived the perfect life. I believe that he went to the cross to die for my sin and the sin of the world and that he didn't stay dead, that, but he was buried according to scriptures and that he was risen according to scriptures so that I can rise to new life and that the world, if they call upon his name, can raise to new life. That's what I believe. But what do you believe? Do you believe the Bible is true? Or let me ask it this way. Why don't you believe the Bible is true? Honestly, let me just ask you this. Have you ever even read the Bible? I mean, really read it and understood it. Or maybe you just don't like its claims on your life, so you've just decided it's not true because it contradicts something that you know. I don't think this is the way it should be. And so you, you've just decided because it contradicts something in you that you don't think it's true. And I'm not trying to be chippy here, so bear with me. But ask yourself, does that sound like an open mind to you? The fact that you have predetermined that the Bible isn't true, but you've never really investigated it or really even know what it says cover to cover. And so I don't mean like picking out one random verse. I mean, that's like cutting somebody off after one phrase and saying, I know everything about that person. If that's how you think about the Bible, that is a de- the definition of a closed mind. 
that you've decided without actually looking at it, without actually understanding, without actually searching through it. Frank Mead says it this way. He says, men don't reject the Bible because it contradicts itself, but because it contradicts them. Maybe you just need to be honest about where you're at. Honest that your real issue with the Bible isn't that it's not accurate or that it, it may not, or that it doesn't have authority or that it shouldn't have that kind of claim, but you just don't like what it says. This Bible was written not as a dusty rule book, but to bring you life. This is what is said about it at the end of John's gospel. The Bible is, excuse me, uh, John 5, Can we go back? I think we got the wrong slide here. Um, you know what? Let's, here it is. Thank you. Thank you, sound man. Sorry, guys. Here we go. He says this, but these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So Luke, all the Bible readers, that these things are written to you, you skeptic, you who don't believe they're written to you that you may believe in Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. If you read the scriptures, you're going to find a lot about Jesus. For other of us, we don't really uh, believe the Bible. Uh, we, excuse me, we do believe the Bible, but we don't really allow it to change us. And the Bible isn't just some dry old writing to be studied for, in, uh, for information, but it's, it's meant to transform our life. D.L. Moody said this, since the Bible was not given to increase our knowledge, it was given to change our lives. Or Jesus said this in John 5. Now we got this verse. Here we go. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and that it bears, and, and it is they that bear witness about me. So here's what he's saying. He's saying like, you Pharisees, he's talking to the Pharisees. He's saying that you search the scriptures diligently. Like you underline stuff, you highlight stuff, you read you know, all the, the, the original language and you, you, you know, but you don't actually, it doesn't really move you. It's not really changing you. It's not really leading you uh, to, to, to me. Uh, for some people, the Bible is, is no more than just kind of a well-thumbed manual for life. And, you know, these kind of read it mechanically. Um, they believe God uh, speaks to this, uh, but they don't really, they don't really, you know, it doesn't, it's not really leaning them to, to, to Christ. I'll, I'll use this analogy. I have a 2010 Honda minivan. Let's just suppose that I got a new one delivered to our front door. And um, I went out, I looked into that Honda, and I got, went to the, to the glove compartment, and I pulled out this Honda manual, this beautiful, glossy manual. I thought, wow, this is fantastic. I took it indoors. I started studying this manual. I got out my felt pen and, you know, I started underlying bits that looked really interesting. I started learning particular bits that I, that I liked uh, by heart. I started memorizing parts of this manual. Uh, I maybe cut out bits of the manual and stuck it to, the, you know, my mirror so I could look at it while I'm shaving. And I thought, you know, maybe, maybe, or maybe I could get some of this manual like in a song form. So I, I got Jordan Dillon. I said, Jordan, will you could you take my manual and like write some songs? And, and I thought, well, you know, uh, I wonder if other people would like this Honda manual. So uh, perhaps maybe I'll join a Honda manual study and just study the manual with other people. Or, or maybe I should learn Japanese so I can understand the manual in its original language. But if I went through all that effort, I would have missed the point. The point of the manual is to help drive the car. Unless we drive the car, unless we have a relationship with Jesus, we've missed a point. Martin Luther said this. I'll have him have the last word. He says, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet and it runs after me. It has hands and it lays a hold, hold of me. So I'm gonna leave you with this thought, Christian. Does the Bible have a hold of you? Is it gripping you? Is it transforming you? Is it drawing you closer to Jesus? Don't read it some like some manual, but but read it as a as a as a as a as the words of God who's leading you deeper into a relationship 
with him. Why don't we pray?